c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. to Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And today we're doing a topic. Yes, we are. And Janelle chose the topic this week, which means we're going with a feel-good, light-hearted human interest story, which means we are talking about angels of death. Death. No boats, no cannibalism. No. Just death. Just death. It's Janelle week. <laughs> so nobody's eating each other, but somebody is dead. Um. <laughs> Seems like a waste of meat. <laughs> Jessica's she's not here for the waste not want not <laughs> she's like you know what murder I can excuse but wastefulness is where I draw the fucking line <laughs> so we're not talking about actual like angels in the biblical sense of the term yeah the term angels of death refers to a specific subgroup of serial killers made up of medical professionals or professional caregivers who murder the people they're supposed to take care of just in case you didn't have enough problems going to a hospital lately let's just put this in your head and swirl it around <laughs> truly nowhere is safe yeah so we'll we'll just go over we'll start with some brief like overview of angels of death we'll get into some specific people who have murdered a variety of patients in some fun and creative ways come on man i can't even get in to see a doctor never mind be killed by one yeah i'm on like a 114,000 person long wait list to get a family doctor in nova scotia and uh, emergency room wait times are like 14 to 16 hours. There's no way I can even access healthcare, let alone be killed by it. So I have nothing yeah. to fear. <laughs> I, have, I have genuinely been looked into the eye by multiple people in the healthcare system and had them have the gall to ask me why I don't have a family medical practitioner. I'm sorry. Have you been paying attention to your own field? <laughs> if I get appendicitis, I will die in 2023 Canada like I'm a 17th century beet farmer. But it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's great. <laughs> so angels of death have been found in a variety of settings and a variety of countries. Truly nowhere is safe. Uh, dating back to antiquity, there's this phenomenon of nurses who kill people in their care has gone on forever um, to the point of being sort of a cultural stereotype. You can actually find you can kind of find this trope of like killer nurse in a lot of different media. Documented angels of death have worked in hospitals, nursing rooms, nurseries, residential facilities, asylums, basically anywhere that you uh, are giving nurses or other medical professionals access to vulnerable people, you will find um, serial killers who murder them for kicks. So There is research on it, but a lot of it is very recent. I think until lately, you could just sort of get away with this forever. I think it's only recently that we can actually catch this. You need, like, advanced statistics and pattern tracking on, <laughs> on a fairly granular level before you're just like, hey, not that many people should be dying in oncology. Yeah, I also feel like for large portions of human history, like, Medicine killed people even when it was done well. <laughs> it's yeah. like, all right, fetch me my rustiest saw in a bucket. Like, there's, yeah, yeah there was no way to tell who was intentionally killing patients because everybody was killing patients. 
I don't even think these are clean leeches. Uh, for a long time, we cured tuberculosis by just sticking people outside. <laughs> like, there's... <laughs> <laughs> you need some fresh air. <laughs> We're just putting terminally ill people on lawn chairs in the snow. Like, it was very difficult to detect people who were actually sadistic versus people who were just following the medically prescribed sadism of the day. Um. <laughs> you didn't even have to be incompetent. In no. fact, if you were doing your job, you probably killed more people. So research on healthcare serial killers, which is the official and way less fun name for Angels of Death, so I'm not going to use it. Yeah, it's not nearly goth enough. For some reason, like, a lot of really good research on Angels of Death comes from the Nursing Association of New Brunswick, which gives me pause. Because <laughs> they're... That's specific. Yeah, and there's not, like, known angels of death from New Brunswick, like, unless they're hiding something. Um, yeah. So, that's Feels fun. like New Brunswick but... doesn't even have enough nurses to have anyone, any of them killing. <laughs> yeah, your healthcare options are in New Brunswick. Well, a, you've got to figure out if the, the local hospital speaks English or French, and if it's the wrong language, you're fucked. B, I feel like most people in New Brunswick are just, like, patching themselves up in the woods. They're like, I'm not driving five hours to Moncton to speak French to somebody and get a Band-Aid. Absolutely not. I will die with dignity in my wood shack. And I can make that joke because I'm from New Brunswick. So, uh, research by the Nursing Association of New Brunswick shows that healthcare workers who kill their patients tend to have a lot in common with each other. And they usually share some oddly specific traits. Um, so if all any medical professional can be an angel of death, there have been doctors, surgeons, respiratory therapists, but by far the most common profession is a nurse or people in nurse adjacent professions, people who work in nursing facilities. Uh, most deaths attributed to angels of death occur in hospitals. They have been recorded in a variety of other facilities like long term care homes, but there's just something about hospitals that does it for people. It is possible, however, that hospitals simply keep better statistics on death and are more likely to investigate unusual patterns of death than nursing homes or long-term care facilities. I bet it's that one. Everybody dies at a nursing home. That's what you're there to do. So they may not investigate deaths too closely. (laughs) They call it Evergreen Acres or whatever, but you know it's Hell's Waiting Room. And I mean, why would you investigate the patterns of death in a nursing home? It's like investigating, like, how many people ate food at a restaurant. They came, they served the purpose, they left. Like, what more do you want? (laughs) Um, Hospitals, on the other hand, like, that is not, it's not what they're going for. That's not, no, it's not not the objective. Most people who walk into a hospital are expected to walk out. Yeah, hospitals also have, like, higher oversight requirements. Your your typical nursing home, I think, can just park grandma in the corner and leave her there until the monitors go off. So, murders by healthcare workers mostly take place on evening and overnight shifts, which makes sense because that is when supervisors and management are least likely to be on duty, and when there's typically the fewest number of staff and of visitors around. So, they like their privacy. Witnesses. They tend to select extremely vulnerable victims. They don't want to work at this. They don't want you to fight back. They want you to die. So they tend to choose victims that are very old, very sick, or very young. They want whoever's going to put up the least fight. This is just so bleak. I feel like I'm just like so uh, cognizant of the fact that I will probably not be able to access healthcare for the next decade in my own country. <laughs> like, you know what? Let's let's take the sting out of that by remembering that maybe nurses kill people and you're better off just not having access to routine medical care. 
Think <laughs> about it. Think about it. Do you really it's need fine. to go see a doctor? <laughs> Everything's fine. That's fine. It's fine. We all take our own risks. <laughs> My blood can keep its secrets. I don't need to get it tested for the next 15 years. We're good here. <laughs> <laughs> The method of death most often used by angels of death is an injectable medication. The most popular ones are ones that are hard to detect on tox screens, these being potassium and insulin. Other common choices also include opioids, muscle relaxants, bleach, heparin, which is an anticoagulant, or just large quantities of air injected into a vein. Interestingly, angels of death fall into the same patterns of organized and disorganized that you see in other types of serial killers. That's interesting, considering they can hold down a job. Right? That's, I mean... But you do have disorganized nurses, like nurse serial killers, which is so interesting, because, yeah, typically employment is not something that disorganized serial killers are real big on. So, for those of you who don't eat true crime for breakfast and have lives outside of this sort of thing, um, an organized killer is a killer who carefully plans their murders in advance and takes steps to conceal their crimes and generally avoid being caught. Um, a disorganized killer, on the other hand, is one who does not plan their crimes, and they typically kill their victims on impulse or based on opportunity. They did not wake up in the morning planning to commit a murder that day. They just kind of, that's how the day, that's where the day took them. They generally don't take steps to conceal the crime or avoid being caught. They'll just leave a corpse out in the open. They don't care. Disorganized killers, probably unsurprisingly, tend to have serious mental health, addiction, or social issues. This is not a well-adjusted bunch. What kind of C-minus human being do you have to be before you can, you're considered poorly adjusted by serial killer standards? Imagine, like, being, <laughs> you know, a serial killer, already, like, a pretty dysfunctional person, and then somebody goes out of their way to be like, no, 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 you're not even good at this. What are you doing? <laughs> like other people are good at this you are fucking this up look at this fucking idiot being a disorganized killer does not necessarily mean that you're easier to catch it can actually be harder to catch them because they don't have a plan there's yes. no connection between the it's it can be hard to catch somebody who's got no fucking idea what they're doing yeah. even they don't know who they're gonna target next there's no pattern to decipher here you're just Leroy Jenkinsing your way into like a fucking Dahmer style body count. Like this is not a lot of and like we say that there's organized and disorganized killers. These are not like cut and dry categories. These are just sort of descriptors that are useful for grouping people. There are a lot of mixed type killers who have traits of both. They may have like an established MO and have some equipment, but like the decision to make a kill is impulse based. There's lots of ways that a killer can be mixed type. So angels of death differ from your regular garden variety serial killer in a number of interesting ways. If if they were a Pokemon, they'd be shiny. They're, they don't fit typical patterns. One of the biggest ones is fairly obvious, and that is gender. Serial killing is a man's, it's a man's world. Yeah, they have gender, Jessica. And other people have gender. It's just you who didn't get one. No, they'd be chancy. <laughs> Pokemon. Oh, I thought you said gender, and I was like, yeah, people have those, just not you. <laughs> uh, no, I said Chansey isn't the None Pokemon. None for Jessica. <laughs> Please, sir, I'd like some more. No. I don't have a sense of myself in the social fabric. <laughs> I'm dressed like a man. 
If you behave yourself and eat all of your Wheaties, maybe you can have some gender. <laughs> oh, please, sir, I'd like to be a real boy. Or a girl, I'm not picky. I suppose that's a problem. <laughs> well, serial killing is very much a man's game. Uh, according to some statistics, and it's very hard to find exact statistics on this, um, but roughly 85% of known serial killers are men. That gap has actually widened over time. Um, there was sort of a golden age of serial killing in the 1970s because all those kids grew up inhaling the fumes of leaded gasoline, which it lead, sounds like lead, a flippant lead. comment. That is actually a that is actually a leading theory as to why everybody was committing murder in the 70s is because all those kids grew up with like some combination of asbestos mm, and lead fumes paint chips uh not good for the old noggin not my favorite flavor <laughs> delicious don't eat lead that is like yeah. if you get nothing else from this podcast that should be the takeaway i'm not saying potato chips are healthy for you but they're better than lead chips but in the last couple of years, like, a serial killing has really died down in recent years, and that gap has widened. So over the past decade or so, only 5-7% to 7 of known serial killers have been female. Angels of Death are pretty much the only exception to this. It's, it's really the lack of opportunity in the serial killing business. <laughs> it's just a glass serial killing ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> Covered in blood. <laughs> Jessica's like, I demand equality. Women need to commit more murders. Catch up, ladies. Lean in. Lean in and stab somebody. No, this is this is one where where we're we're content to sit this one out. More women in stab, um, more women in serial killing. Well, women are overrepresented among angels of death serial killers, which is something we have going for us. Wow. While there are male angels of death, this is weirdly a very female-dominated phenomenon. It's actually so female-dominated that it's not really possible to compare quote-unquote regular female serial killers to female angels of death. So many female serial killers fit this pattern, like our nurses that kill their patients, that statistics on female serial killers are skewed by how many are angels of death. Eileen Wernos and Carla Homoka, like those sorts of female serial killers are very, very much rare exceptions. Angels of death are sort of the rule for female serial killers. To the point that 39% of all known female serial killers are healthcare professionals. They are grossly overrepresented. 72% of female serial killers murdered at least one person who was entrusted to their care. Uh, this is often one of their own children, but a, for a significant portion of them, it is a patient or a boarder, or somebody that they were caretaking on a more casual basis. But when when women murder, they murder people whose bums they wipe. That's just a rule. I don't know why. There is sort of like a, a stereotype that of like, you know, the woman drowning her kids in the bathtub. Like there is a, there is a stereotype about female murder. But although half of female serial killers murdered at least one of their own children, the majority of murders of a child by one of their biological parents are... Men take the lead on this, yep, hands down. If a child is going to be murdered by a parent, statistically, it is far more likely to be their father or their stepdad. Usually, yeah. Step if for in terms of danger to a child, stepfathers are pose the greatest danger. Like statistically, I'm not. If you love your particular stepdad, Steve, I'm not saying that Steve is planning to murder you. Probably not. Craig's gonna get you. Statistically, he's not your real dad, and he's gonna kill you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you're 32. Steve's in a nursing home. I think you're safe. Um, he's not though. But 
<laughs> we'll get into it. <laughs> oh no. Uh yes, step stepfathers pose the greatest risk to children statistically, followed by biological fathers, followed by mothers. Keeping in mind that the the the, the base rate of this is already very low. Incredibly low. The vast majority of people have never killed a child. Craig is not going to hurt you, probably. <laughs> He's not going to hurt you, but he is fucking your mom. So, 50-50 on that. Another thing that Angels of Death uh, sets them apart from typical serial killers is the characteristics of their victims. So, 49% of quote-unquote classic serial killers, the serial killer original, um, only ever murder women. Of serial killers who only murder women, many of them have a specific profile in mind of who they're looking to kill. I know everybody goes straight to, like, the Ted Bundy long brown hair parted in the middle, but a lot of serial killers have sort of a rough profile of, of who it is that they're looking to murder because serial murder is inherently tied to fantasy. Um, angels of death tend to not care. Um, they're pretty indiscriminate when it comes to their victims. The only thing they really care about is access and vulnerability. So in 20 years from now, when you're in a bed with a woman standing over you with a needle, you were just there. You're not special. <laughs> I was going to say, you're lucky. Imagine you having a nurse in your old age. What a what a wonderful <laughs> fantasy that is. <laughs> it's going to be your grandchildren arguing about whether it's time to kill you with a rock. <laughs> Even if she kills you, you got to remember, that's a privilege. But yeah, angels of death tend to not discriminate based on gender. They kill men and women roughly equally. Um, it really is less about who the victim is and more about the power that they have over them and the access they have to them. Again, though, angels of death make up so many, such a huge portion of female serial killers that it skews statistics on men versus women entirely. So female serial killers tend to kill much older victims than men. Um, it's hard to get great numbers on this, but victims of male serial killers tend to be under 30, while victims of female serial killers tend to be 48 and up. This difference is probably, again, largely due to the number of female angels of death who specifically kill elderly patients. Another big difference is education. Obviously, if you work in a hospital, you tend to need to have specialty training to do that. Whereas one study found that only 16% of general serial killers attended college and only 4% held a college degree, the vast majority of angels of death have a university degree. They have to, to even have their jobs. The difference in education also probably accounts for some of the age gap in serial killing. On average, men make their first kill at age 27. And by I mean men, I mean serial killers. Your average man does not <laughs> make his first kill at age 27. That's not, it's not actually a life experience that most people have outside of wartime. Like, yeah, no. the, average, the average dude you date in his 30s has not been bloodied by, by, by the essence of a, of a human being. Yeah, no, no, no. In fact, every <laughs> dude you made hasn't even killed an animal. <laughs> I was gonna say, your average, like, 32-year-old dude is still squeamish about, like, taking chicken breast out of a package. He's not killed a man. Like, you're good here. <laughs> no. Um, women, and again, women serial killers, don't make their first kill until an average of 31. Uh, past my prime. So this is probably due to the fact that female serial killers have a harder time getting a head start it takes them a couple of years to finish school and get the training required to secure positions where they have ready access to victims. You know, they want to see the world, have some experiences before they settle down into a kill spree. 
Yeah. You want you want to travel. You want to be somebody. You got to find who you are. Live, laugh, love, then kill. <laughs> Other big piece is just the overall diversity. So we have mentioned this quite a bit before on the podcast, specifically in our episode on the Phantom of Heilbronn. Truly a delight. Go listen if you haven't. Um, but there's quite a bit of diversity among male serial killers. When you think of a male serial killer, most people try to tend to picture a white dude in his mid to late 20s. That feels like a statistical anomaly caused by, like, these stats being from the U.S. in the, like, 80s and 90s. Well, I mean, it's also, like, cultural perception. Like, we have been absolutely beaten about the head with, like, Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy. Um, and there's just, there's not enough representation in serial killing? I don't know. Um, Like, that's a media perception. There are absolutely black serial killers. It's just that they also tend to kill black people, and we don't give a shit. Male serial killers are diverse in a number of ways. That profile of white dude in his mid to late 20s only accounts for around 12% of known serial killers. Male serial killers come from all racial groups, all age ranges, all sexualities, all professions, socioeconomic background... Just truly a rich tapestry of serial killing. We are the world. Female serial killers, on the other hand, are... They're a monotonous bunch. They are overwhelmingly college-educated, middle-aged white women who have professional careers in traditionally female roles, such as nurses, teachers, or caretakers. Are they also majority blonde? They sound like all of my bullies in high... Well, not high school. Elementary school. I was gonna say, I grew up in, like, a pretty white suburb, so this just sounds like everybody who lived on our street. Um, (laughs) I mean, a shocking number of girls from my high school did grow up to be nurses, but I feel like most of them have never killed anybody. You don't know that. (laughs) They've killed a few souls in in the hallways of high school, but they've not killed anybody's physical body. They match the profile! (laughs) Jessica, you can't profile middle-aged white women as murderous nurses. It's weird and it doesn't even make sense. I've cracked the case. (laughs) Jessica, you're going to end up on the news. My sister works at a hospital. She's a lab tech, though. I think we're safe. (laughs) She is also not traditionally feminine by any stretch of the imagination. I was going to say, your sister is not not a delicate flower. But also, do not waterboard your sister to get a confession of angel of death murder out of her. I don't think she's doing it. damn it! (laughs) I know you can. Another big difference, which is kind of fun, is overall skill at serial killing. Not that I'm trying to, like, rate serial killers and provide validation like I'm some sort of figure skating judge. But overall, like, angels of death are pretty much better at it by most metrics you can think of. It's also just, like, it's incredibly hard to catch these killers, and we'll go over this in more detail. We don't have specific numbers on, like, angels of death versus other types of serial killers, but we do have numbers of male versus female serial killers, and when it comes to murdering multiple people with cooling off periods in between, like, the ladies have a clear advantage. The, the ladies have it. On average, male serial killers are apprehended within two to four years of committing their first crime by, I mean, murder, not shoplifting. They're apprehended <laughs> within two to four years of their first murder, while women are not apprehended until eight to eleven years on average. Um, just lapping the dudes. That At that point, that's just showing off. Um, there's no firm numbers on this, obviously, because there's no real way to measure this. But many experts suspect that women are far more likely to get away with serial murder than men and never be apprehended for it at all. 
Um, it's very, and it's not even a case of like, haha, you just Zodiac killer off into the sunset and nobody gets you. It's very likely that many female serial killers are never detected, that nobody ever raises the alarm on any of their deaths or even considers them to be murders because it's very hard to catch these people. You can stay within the bounds of statistical significance. People might not ever notice at all what you're doing. There's, there's generally two ways that angels of death get caught. Either they are caught in the act, some like family member walks into the room and just sees them smothering grandma with a pillow. That is a surprisingly common way for them to get caught. They get careless. <laughs> get fucked. But often they're only caught when somebody runs statistics and notices that a particular ward has an unusual pattern of death or more deaths than it normally should. And this can take years. Hospitals can notice that they had an active angel of death years after that person has left the hospital. Not every hospital routinely compares deaths to um, staff schedules, which is usually the only way to sort of detect this. It sounds obvious on the future. It's like, haha, oh, well, whatever Sally works, somebody tends to croak. But all staff in certain healthcare facilities will have deaths happen on their shift. And statistical flukes are always going to be more likely than a serial killing nurse on the loose. If most of the, pa- the nurses on the ward have overseen four deaths and Sally has overseen six, it doesn't necessarily mean that Sally committed a bunch of murders. It could just mean, like, I don't know. Sounds like a math question. (laughs) Just how should... It is a math question, which is why it's so hard to catch this. Math is horseshit. And, you know, of course, hopefully, some major world event never happens that dramatically spikes hospital deaths and scrambles the staffing, making angels of death almost impossible to detect. (laughs) Hopefully nothing like that ever happens. What is uh, a for, travel for nurse, anyway? Three years. Other than a miserable little pile of secrets. <laughs> a travel nurse is a little pile of secrets? A miserable little pile of secrets. It's a reference to Castlevania. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's that... I don't... I've never seen that in the ads. I don't think <laughs> they put that in the job description. Look at all these smiling young people with blood behind their eyes. <laughs> Your duties are uh, shift work. Charting, intubation, and secrets. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that's interesting, though, to look at is the motives, because this this can seem incomprehensible from the outside, but there's actually some clearly defined reasons why people do this. Who among us has not wanted to squeeze the life out of a human being? Most people, Jessica. But although people in caretaking positions systemically murdering the people who've been entrusted to their care already seems like an incredibly specific type of serial killer, they actually have several subtypes. They do come in some flavors, which is distinguished by the motive that they identify for killing. Again, these groups are sort of a rough guideline. I... I, Anytime somebody's like, hey, these are perfect exact categories that human beings fit neatly into all the time. Uh, that person is full of shit and you should drown them in a foot bath. Um, <laughs> you should wait until they're in the hospital, get a nursing degree, and then kill them. I should not have introduced you to this as a method of serial killing. This is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fun. And this is my two favorite things. Death and taking care of people. <laughs> I also feel like getting a nursing degree out of spite is the most like roundabout way to kill somebody ever. You're just like, all right, fuck, all I gotta do is complete four years of rigorous education and then wait for you to have a stroke. Eat that sodium. Like, Full eye of the tiger. <laughs> incredibly. Playing the long game. It's the perfect crime. 
some people who fit into this category of serial killing, people who've committed healthcare murders, they could have multiple reasons for what they do, or there's people whose motives are unclear, incomprehensible, or people who who simply are not in their right frame of mind. In some cases, the killers don't really provide any insight into their motives, and people simply have to guess at what their motives were based on comments they made to colleagues, or just sort of taking a stab in the dark. Literally. It's tough to know why a person would risk everything to kill innocent people who they don't know and whose deaths would not benefit them in any way. A lot of serial killing is driven by sexual fantasy. Um, that is a leading motive in serial murder, and it's it's not typically a motive that you see in healthcare murders. Maybe they just find old people and cr- children incredibly sexy. Uh, I mean, that's it's not unheard of, but... It's not like it reduces their workload because they work in a hospital. Any bed that empties is going to fill with another patient almost immediately. There's They don't personally hate these people. Many of them worked in like wards where people were intubated. They'd never spoken a word to these people in their lives. Typically, though, a lot of, a lot of analysis of this type of serial killer does not count people as angels of death if they work in the medical profession but kill people for financial gain. So the fact that somebody works in the medical profession and kills patients doesn't necessarily mean that you fit this subtype. Killers who kill entirely for financial gain are known as comfort killers and not typically counted as angels of death. So this is serial killers like H.H. Holmes or Dorothy Puente, who both intentionally took vulnerable people into their care for the purposes of murdering them for financial gain. Sometimes they'll show up on lists of famous angels of death, but they don't really fit the other killers. Um, so let's look at the three major subgroups of serial killers, starting with angels of mercy. So the first type of angel of death, which is known as an angel of mercy, or sometimes simply a mercy killer, is probably what you first imagine when you hear about a nurse or a doctor killing patients in the hospital. So these killers are primarily motivated by a twisted sense of mercy, They kill out of a desire to put suffering people out of their misery. They typically target, or at least they claim to target, people who are beyond saving and who have no hope of experiencing anything other than continued suffering, decline, and early death. Of course, deciding whose life is worth living is really not their call to make. That's the whole thing. There's a reason that decisions around end-of-life care and the discontinuation of medical treatment are controversial and complex, And they are made by families, legal guardians, advanced directives, courts, medical ethics teams. They're not usually made by a random nurse who kind of walks into your hospital room and decides you're looking a little too gray today. That's not normally how that decision's made. Typically not not just like Sharon playing it by ear. (laughs) Even as Canada continues in its like relentless quest to euthanize the poor, we still don't put this in place as a system for deciding who dies. You don't you don't just get to come in and go, oh yeah, you're looking a little wilted. Come here, you. That's not yeah. no. Susan said you looked peaky. <laughs> um, there's angels of mercy who have made objectively incorrect calls about who was beyond saving. So although they may claim that they killed people who were terminally ill or unable to recover or close to death. Some have also killed victims whose prognosis was very good and who were actually expected to recover. Yeah, that's probably why they got caught. <laughs> Eventually, you just run out of dying people and that itch takes you. You just, you gotta scratch it. I don't know. Uh, we've all been there. <laughs> I, I don't think that we have, Jessica. We've all been there. Some angels of mercy may have had some delusional beliefs about who needed to be put out of their misery. Others may have started off as true mercy killers 
and may have become addicted to the thrill of playing God, gradually ramping up their killings and lowering their criteria for who they're going to put out of their misery. I also personally think it's worth noting that, like, quote-unquote, wanting to put poor, suffering people out of their ceaseless misery is probably the most socially acceptable explanation you can give for why you killed dozens of people. Like, if I got my sexual jollies by suffocating old people, I would go with mercy killing rather than admitting what I was actually up to. Like, you could not waterboard that information Mm. out of me. I would be like, yes, it was out of concern for their pain and suffering. I I was being merciful. I was not at all on a sexual thrill ride (laughs) like no absolutely not me though i'm gonna be straight up honest yeah your honor she looked exactly like queen elizabeth ii and i couldn't help myself (laughs) every day that you are not the lead story on the (laughs) evening news is a day we are grateful for (laughs) a blessing bless us father for this 10 p.m cbc broadcast we are about to receive that has no trace of Jessica's sexual proclivity for Queen Elizabeth II. So uh, we'll look at a famous angel of mercy, and this is the case of Charles Cullen. So Charles Cullen is an American nurse and serial killer who was responsible for the deaths of at least 29 confirmed patients across several hospitals from 1988 until the year 2003. He got away with this for a long time. So he's like the Tom Brady of serial killing. <laughs> he did actually try to retire a couple of times and he just kept getting back at it. That is true of this serial killer. Yeah. He's just addicted to the game. And a good arm. Um, He's suspected to be responsible for around 40 deaths in total, but his exact victim count will just never be known. I don't even know he would remember. They gotta blur together at some point. Well, that's the thing is like they often can't remember because I mean you you kill one old lady with insulin, you've killed them all, and um, if you're not catching, you know, if you've got a serial killer who's not caught until two thousand three but was murdering people in nineteen eighty nine, many of those people there is no hope of doing a toxicology scan on what's left of their remains. Many people are cremated, um, so you don't have bodily tissue that you can test for this kind of thing. Like, there's, there's often just no way of knowing who died of natural causes and who was given a gentle little push by a psychopath. Charles Cullen's case is particularly interesting, too, because he highlights just how difficult it can be to catch and prosecute angels of death, even when people absolutely know that they're fucking doing it. Like, even when multiple people know, like, Oh, he's doing it! Oh, this it. guy is for sure murdering old ladies in the dark. Like, zero question about it. You still can't prosecute this. It's incredibly difficult to prove. So Charles Cullen, who is still alive, if you want a prison pen pal, I guess here's your option. This is like a personals ad. Charles Cullen was born February 22nd, which, I mean, almost happy birthday, Charles. That is fun. In the year 1960 in West Orange, New Jersey, the youngest of eight children in a working class Catholic family. His mother was an immigrant from England and his father worked as a bus driver. Cullen's father died when Cullen was less than a year old, leaving his mother alone with the eight kids. He would later describe his childhood as miserable and said that he was viciously bullied by his peers. His lifelong struggles with mental health actually began in childhood, and he made his first suicide attempt at the age of nine when he drank all the chemicals out of a toy chemistry set, which is probably why they don't give those to kids anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It never occurred to me, but yeah, that wasn't a good idea, huh? Yeah, it's a terrible idea for a toy. Like, 
Jesus, we we barely got away with having um those uh those moon shoes that broke your ankles. Like toy toy chemistry sets are above and beyond. Speak speak for yourself. My mom did not trust me around the moon shoes. <laughs> I got moon shoes for Christmas, and it's kind of like being gifted a trip to the emergency room. Like just here you go. <laughs> Cullen's mother was killed in a car accident during his final year of high school, which devastated him. So after graduating high school, he then enlisted in the Navy. He actually passed the rigorous psychological examinations needed to be a submarine crewman, which is interesting given his later life, and he served as a missile operator in the USS Woodrow Wilson submarine. This is like one of the, apparently one of the most difficult jobs you can get in the Navy because like they need to make sure that you're not going to fucking snap. After four months under the ocean with the same, like, couple of guys in your face. But Cullen reportedly continued to face constant bullying and hazing by his peers while serving in the Navy and was not having a good time. So in 1979, Cullen had some sort of episode. Um, He was found seated at the missile controls of the submarine wearing medical scrubs, gloves, and a surgical mask instead of his naval uniform. And he is not a nurse at this point. So Cullen was subsequently transferred to a lower stress job on a supply ship, but his mental health continued to worsen. He attempted suicide shortly after the transfer and was hospitalized in the Navy psych ward. He would be repeatedly returned to the Navy psych ward several times over the next few years before being medically discharged from the Navy for unspecified reasons in 1894. He was not discharged from the Navy in 1894. Um... He was discharged from the Navy in 1984 when he was 24 years old and not negative 60. (laughs) (laughs) Very important distinction. He could time travel. That's just the most confusing part. This is what he chose to do with it. (laughs) After leaving the Navy, Cullen enrolled in nursing school at Mountainside Hospital. This was was an age where you could, it was a two-year program to become a nurse and not four. Um, so he graduated two years later in 1986 as the president of his nursing class. And after graduation, he got a job working in the burn unit of the St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. The following year, in 1987, he met a woman named Adrian and got married, and they would go on to have two daughters together. So from an outside perspective, like, everything's kind of coming up Cullen. He's got a job, he's doing great in school, he's got a wife, he's got kids, like, he is living his best life. Good for you, Cullen. Yeah, he got his first professional job and pretty much immediately started murdering people. Like, just immediately. So it's believed that he killed his first patient in June of 1988 at St. Barnabas Medical Center. A retired New Jersey municipal judge had been admitted for an allergic reaction to blood thinners that cause severe sunburns. So there are some medications you can take, and always always read your pill bottles, kids, where they make you so sensitive to sunburn that you can't go out in direct sunlight after taking them, and the judge had. But the sunburns ended up being the least of this judge's um, concerns because Cullen had killed him by administering a lethal injection of an IV drug. I thought you said this guy was like an angel of mercy killer. Yeah, his first kill was a guy with a severe sunburn. So it feels like he's really not going for the most vulnerable and sick. Like, did no one question this? He he just comes in with a sunburn and fucking dies? Well, it was like he came in with an allergic reaction to the blood thinner. So there was a lot of stuff going on medically. Um, It wasn't just the sunburn. But still, Cullen killed him with an IV drug uh, injection. Um, He would later eventually admit to killing a second patient at that hospital, an AIDS patient, with a lethal dose of insulin. 
And in total, he admitted to killing four or five patients in total during the time he worked at St. Barnabas from 1988 to 1992. Um, although he wasn't quite sure of the number and the only two he could really give as exact kills were that municipal judge and the AIDS patient. So in January of 1992, St. Barnabas began an investigation into suspicions of IV tampering, which they should have because that's absolutely what was happening. They never released the findings of their investigation and they never contacted law enforcement about their suspicions at any point, um, probably to avoid potential lawsuits, which is a theme that comes up over and over is that hospitals do not actually oh, no. want to out angels of death because it leaves them open to wrongful death lawsuits. It, it just leaves them open to lawsuits of all sorts. After Cullen was eventually captured, investigators would try to link him to over a dozen deaths at St. Barnabas where IV tampering was suspected, but he was adamant that he had only killed four or five, so who's to say? He left St. Barnabas when the investigation started and found another job at Warren Hospital in Phillips, New Jersey. He would work there until 1994, and in that time he claimed that he killed three elderly female patients with lethal overdoses of injected digoxin, which is a heart medication that can just kill you in large doses, which is, which is fun. Cullen had had serious mental health issues dating back to early childhood, but in 1993, he really just went off the rails a little bit. His wife filed for divorce and a restraining order against him, claiming he was deeply mentally ill and that he was behaving erratically and abusing the family dogs. She also claimed that she had feared for the safety of herself and of the couple's two children. Good According instincts. to her, Cullen had spiked other people's beverages with lighter fluid, set fire to his daughter's uh, books. feel like you would notice that. The lighter fu fluid cocktail? I feel like you should notice that. Right, mm, I do love a good oily sheen that tastes like paint thinner. That's delicious. She claimed that he had, yes, been feeding people beverages with lighter fluid in them, that he had set fire to his daughter's books, and that on one occasion he had abandoned his children with a babysitter for a week without telling them where they were going. Cullen claimed that his wife's accounts of his erotic behavior were exaggerated, and based on the rest of his life, I have a hard time believing that. That year, Cullen moved into a basement apartment by himself, and his mental health continued to decline. He later claimed that this is a point where he wanted to quit nursing, but he was unable to quit as he wanted, or not that he wanted to continue making child support payments. He was required to continue making child support payments and so was not able to leave his job. You don't understand, officer. I need to keep killing people, otherwise I'll be a deadbeat dad. <laughs> yeah, so later in that year, after moving into his basement apartment, he became obsessed with a co-worker and actually broke into her house while she and her child were sleeping. Um, apparently he just watched oh. them sleep for a while and then left without getting caught. Uh, he did continue to stalk this co-worker, however, and she eventually filed a police report that led to his arrest. Uh, he pled guilty to trespassing, which was ultimately the charge that stuck, and he was sentenced to a year of probation. He would make a suicide attempt the day after his arrest and spent months in and out of two separate psychiatric facilities, making two more suicide attempts in this time frame. Despite his apparent mental health crisis, he continued to work as a nurse at Warren Hospital while this was going on. How? Just, just, you know. How? Like, even for his own well-being, how? Right, like, there are days that I don't particularly want to go to work, but I don't wake up and be like, mm, I've killed six people at my job, maybe I need to rethink some shit. In September of 1994, a 91-year-old female cancer patient re reported to her son that a, quote, sneaky male nurse had snuck into her room and injected her with something while she slept. 
She died the day after making this accusation. So her son raised a big fuss and the hospital did end up administering lie detector tests to all male nurses, including Cullen, who apparently passed with flying colors. Um, so he continued to work at Warren Hospital until the following spring. But yeah, so after leaving Warren Hospital, he took a job in the intensive care unit at Hunterdon Medical Center in Flemington, New Jersey. And at this point, again, remember, like, this is a nurse who has now been investigated twice by two separate hospitals for possible connection to suspicious patient deaths. Like, what does he put on his resume? Who are his references? Skills. Keeping patients alive, for sure. Um, not killing patients. Um, giving patients the right dose of their medications and definitely not an overdose of insulin so I can then watch the life leave their body. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty healthy set of skills there. Man, you really could just get a job anywhere. <laughs> if there's one thing that, like, being a hiring manager has taught me, it's that you can massage that into any resume. This this nurse, in addition to being, like, in investigated twice, or at least been part of investigations twice... He has been repeatedly involuntarily hospitalized in psychiatric units for mental breakdowns and suicide attempts, and he has a criminal record for stalking a co-worker. Um, but naturally, none of that matters because we don't have enough nurses. So Cullen claims he did not kill anybody during his first two years at Hunterdon, but apparently murdering patients is just an itch some people can't leave unscratched for long. It's also... Important to note that it's impossible to verify whether this period without murders is true because Hunterton had already destroyed its patient records from the time Cullen worked there by the time he was caught in 2003. These people were just like, it's hot off the fucking printer, straight into the shredder. Go, go, go. Burn it. Burn it all. Yeah, even the notes from yesterday. What is your patient on? Fuck if we know. Burn the notes. We're doing great. <laughs> you were here two weeks ago? Fuck you. Fuck you. We've no idea who you are. I have no memory of this place. In 1996, the urge to kill struck again, and he claims to have killed five patients between January and September that year, all with lethal injections of digoxin, which is that heart medication that you should not have too much of. This is very specific. I mean, like, he has he has a preferred poison. Oh, yeah. A lot of them do kind of settle into a preferred poison. And um, you can actually get away with it. I mean, I'm not trying to give advice on how to be a good serial murdering nurse. I can't emphasize this enough. This is for educational purposes only. Please do not kill your patients. Um, but a lot I'm of taking notes. angels of death end up settling on a method that has no street value. That's very important. If you start stealing the good shit out of the med cabinets, people notice immediately. They monitor the heroin. Right? Like Less so. The digoxin. Yeah, and if you're, like, smuggling fentanyl and Oxycontin out of the hospital, honest to God, I think, like, serial killing nurse looking to, like, ease the path to the grave is not going to be their first assumption. No. In fact, that's that's going to be even more startling for them. Right. You thought this was a simple, a simple work misdemeanor. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there are bodies. <laughs> So Cullen left Hunterdon and briefly worked for another hospital, but was quickly fired for his poor work performance. We've all been there. We've all been there. I mean, we have not been standing over, like, the bed of an old lady with a tube of digoxin in our hands, but we've, you know. We've all been there, Janelle. <laughs> every, every weekend, Jessica's like, time to climb into this clown suit and open some beds at the hospital. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm doing I'm gonna, my part. I'm going to clear that medical backlog with death. You don't understand. I need a checkup. <laughs> I need it so bad. <laughs> yeah, so after leaving, after being fired from the hospital he worked at after Hunterdon, Cullen had a six-month stint of unemployment and was once again admitted to psychiatric care for treatment of depression. Despite his increasingly sketchy employment record, his unemployment was not to last. In February of 1998, he got hired on at Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he worked on a ward with patients who had respirators. Oh, good. Yeah, oh yeah, the most vulnerable. Like, the most vulnerable. He, he had frequent performance issues where he was caught giving patients drugs at unscheduled times, which is a thing that a hospital makes a big deal out of, as you can well imagine. Eventually, he was fired for an incident where he was seen entering a patient's room holding syringes, and there was an encounter that somehow ended in the patient ending up with a broken arm. In his time at Liberty, he killed one patient, but was able to successfully blame this patient death on another nurse, which just sucks. <laughs> uh, how would that gal or guy feel after it all comes out? Damn it! I was gonna say, imagine losing your career and oh, then finding fuck. out that, like, you were accused of a of a murder that is like one in forty that somebody else did. Yeah, that would <laughs> suck. I mean, vindication, but that would suck. <laughs> uh, in November of 1998, he got a new job at Easton Hospital, where he killed a patient the month after he was hired with a lethal overdose of digoxin. Really, the really the drug of choice. Come on, hold it, hold it back. So this death that he committed at Easton Hospital was actually noticed by the hospital and an investigation was conducted, but the investigation was deemed inconclusive um, and the killer was never formally identified, although we do suspect it to be Charles. Um, in 1999, he took a job in a burn unit at Lehigh Valley Hospital, Cedar Crest, which is somehow all the name of the facility where he murdered another patient, unsuccessfully attempted to murder a second patient, and then resigned after a month. So he's he's really just on a roll. Just speedrunning hospitals. He's almost going through 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 victims the way he's going through jobs. Yeah, it's kind of like you were that like Katamari Damacy game where you have to roll stuff up. He's just like nah 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 like but like collecting professional ethics violations. But yeah, so did murdering more people and resigning in disgrace slow him down and finding a new job of course it fucking didn't absolutely, absolutely not. not it didn't uh in the late 90s there was a national nursing shortage and employment records were not carefully tracked so <laughs> hospitals didn't necessarily think it was worth looking into there it was not routinely done that they looked into problem nurses um, employment records or compared notes between different past hospitals so problem nurses could just continue to get new jobs indefinitely you have four limbs and you can hold a syringe. Congratulations, you're hired. After leaving Lehigh, Cullen took yet another job in the cardiac unit at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Over the next three years, he would kill at least five more patients at this hospital, and he attempted to kill another two. He was hospitalized once again for a suicide attempt in the year 2000 after lighting a charcoal grill in his bathtub in an effort to kill himself with carbon monoxide. Which, like, Come on, points, dude, just buy a car. Right, points for creativity, but, like, dude, at some point somebody has to open that door and you're just gonna gas them, like. Also, you have access to large quantities of digoxin. Just figure it out. 
apparently not. Um, You've killed dozens of people by this point. Figure it out. <laughs> it's like that Be a Man song from Mulan, but it's just like, Be a man, you must kill a sick, be a- patient. Kill yourself, you must kill a dozen more. <laughs> it's like there's just like a little voice in the back of Jessica's head singing this continuously. <laughs> Jessica's just like working out to the sound of like, kill yourself. <laughs> I, I like it. It's got, a, it's got a rhythm. We're fine. We're both fine. We have very supportive friends and family around us. We're fine. Well, uh, Charles Cullen attempted to kill himself by lighting a charcoal grill in the bathtub. Um, but he was rescued when neighbors. We've all been there. Who amongst us? We've all been. Oh, there. I'm I'm not in it for any kind of bleak reasons. I just truly enjoyed grilled meat in the tub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Best when it's fresh off. The I'm barbecue. in it for the ribs. <laughs> what you're talking about? Um, it's it is fun too because I live in obviously Nova Scotia, a land of no doctors or electricity. Um, every time a major storm comes through, at least one. A, the power goes out because we can't. The power in Nova Scotia goes out if the fog is too salty. So definitely storms, the power goes out. And every major storm we've had, there's been at least like one apartment building that has to be evacuated because somebody chose to barbecue indoors because. It's dead wet outside. Because eating I peanut it. butter and crackers like the rest of us simply will not do. Um, yeah, so don't light a barbecue grill indoors, it will kill you. Um, not in Cullen's case, though. His neighbors noticed the smoke and they called for emergency services and he was rescued. In 2002, a co-worker at St. Luke's noticed that some medication vials were in a disposal bin and they were not supposed to be there. These were drugs that had no recreational purposes or street value, so it was very unusual that these drugs would be stolen. Not everything in a hospital is happy fun good times. A lot of it just has no value outside of the hospital. Yeah, it would be weird if someone was just like, Stealing all the bunion ointment for no fucking reason. <laughs> if I see somebody like a hospital on TV pleading for the safe return of their bunion ointment, I'm turning you in. I will crime stopper you. <laughs> see that I don't. It's way too specific. Like Jessica, the, the people crime. have bunions. Please. <laughs> it's the perfect crime. <laughs> After an investigation, the hospital did determine that Cullen had been the one to steal the drugs. Uh, and he was offered a deal. They told him that he could either voluntarily resign and receive a neutral recommendation from the hospital, or he could be fired. Um, naturally, he chose resignation. I mean, fair enough. He, he's probably familiar enough with the hiring process by this point. It's like... He's had like 47 jobs. This man just lives for like the resume. Like This man just lives and dies with a job interview. He didn't even care. Honestly, like, I think he gets up in the morning, he prints out another resume, and he walks out the door. Right? He's like, fire me, motherfucker. I'll have six job offers by lunchtime. Like, we got this. Yeah. Will I hold down any of those jobs? No, but that's not the point. That's not the point. I can get them. I can hoard them like some sort of job dragon. We love it. But yeah, so he chose resignation for obvious reasons. Uh, And St. Luke's did not pursue the issue any further, again, probably to avoid the possibility of a lawsuit. So even though they knew... They had a nurse who was stealing drugs who had no apparent street value. They were like, well, I'm perfectly content to not know any more information about that. Let's just let's just move on. Let's not question why somebody was stealing mass amounts of heart medication. Like, no, we're good. 
And then actually, after he resigned, seven of his colleagues approached a local district attorney to raise concerns that Cullen had intentionally killed several patients in his care during his time at the hospital. Oh, finally. Yeah, if seven of your coworkers think you're murdering people on the job, I feel like you're not doing a particularly good job of covering your tracks. Um, so seven no. people went to the DA and were like, we're very concerned that he's just murdering people. And then it sort of went nowhere. Um, the DA would actually drop the inquiry nine months later due to a lack of evidence. I feel like they didn't try that hard. There's a district attorney's just going like, we've all been there. We've all stolen massive amounts of heart medication. (laughs) I feel like my first response would be like, hey, can I show you where the shit with street value is? You're stealing worthless heart medication. (laughs) Like, Let me show you where we keep the good shit. This is ridiculous. Do you know what this is? (laughs) (laughs) You're not a very good nurse. I question your your credentials. (laughs) This shit is worthless. Steal the good shit or don't steal it all. Cullen's next and final job in the medical field was in the critical care unit at Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey, which he began in September of 2002. So at this point, this guy has a strong 14-year track record of being investigated, fired, or forced to resign for suspected misconduct, which includes suspicions that he is intentionally killing patients. Does that matter? Not in 2002, it fucking doesn't. Nursing shortage, baby. <laughs> Yeah, does not even. This is not even a speed bump on the road to a new job. Like this man just drives over this and keeps going. There's absolutely nothing slows this guy down. They need nurses. Man, I, I dream about being this employable. Yeah, you could probably do your whole job interview at Wookie, and they would still hire you at this point. I mean, that's still true today. <laughs> they don't give a shit. Um, by mid two thousand and three, he had killed at least thirteen patients at Somerset. And he attempted to kill at least one more, all with overdoses of digoxin, insulin, and epinephrine. So he just goes off the fucking rails, which is interesting, because at this point in his life, he's in a brand new relationship with a woman he just met. Things seem to be kind of going swimmingly, and then he's like, guess what? I'm gonna kill 13 people. Just for spice. To celebrate. New year, new me. Um, But this time, Cullen was brought down by the thing that will one day kill us all. Computers. (laughs) they'll all put us out of a job soon enough again i'm kidding you're you were just ahead of the curve cullen you're just ahead of the curve yeah i'm joking you're all gonna die in a super hurricane it's fine so somerset was a modern computerized hospital and management began to notice that cullen was regularly accessing the rooms and patient files of patients who were not assigned to him which they found odd the drug dispensing medicine cabinets at that hospital were also computerized, and so they logged that Cullen was repeatedly Andy. requesting medications that had not been prescribed to his patients. This dude really likes digoxin. The man's a fan. Weird. He's gotta feed the beast. It, well, I mean, like, what is, what is the option here? That he just has, like, a secret heart problem? <laughs> like, when you see a dude, like, mass stockpiling huge amounts of medication... And, like, also people in his shift tends to die? Like, come on. You gotta connect those dots. You went to med school. You can do this. You know what this is. There was also, like, very strange patterns to his drug requests, where he would log several requests in a row, or, like, log requests and immediately cancel them. So they, they found that odd as well. In July of 2003, the executive director of New Jersey Poison Information and Education Center alerted the hospital that a pattern of at least four suspicious patient overdose deaths 
likely meant that they had a member of staff who was intentionally killing patients. <laughs> You're right. Like, poison control is calling to be like, hey, man, it's just, like shit's fucked. I don't know what to tell you, man. Hey, I know that you guys are all technically medical professionals, but I promise you, someone is killing your patients. Right? I would listen. Shit's up. But even though they got this call in July of 2003, the hospital did not contact law enforcement until October. Why? And by the time they finally got around to contacting law enforcement, Cullen had killed five more patients. What the fuck? Yeah, he's really on a spree here. Upon investigation, state officials discovered that the hospital had failed to report a non-fatal insulin overdose administered by Cullen in August, which is a huge no. They also discovered that Cullen had a long history of misconduct and suspicions at various hospitals that he had worked at. He was fired for the final time on October 31st of 2003. The reason officially given for his termination was lying on his job application. I mean... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> right? I was like, I feel like that's the least of it. I mean, that's... That's that's not the... It's a problem, but it's not, like, the focus here. <laughs> I feel like that's besides the point. <laughs> but yeah, so despite this years-long pattern of suspicious conduct and computer records of improperly accessed drugs, authorities didn't quite have enough evidence to take this case to trial. Um, the breakthrough actually came in the form of a fellow nurse named Amy Lauren. Uh, Amy was a close friend of Cullen's, and she was a single mother of two children. She was living with cardiomyopathy at the time, which was a serious heart condition in that day. I mean, it still is. Like, don't get me wrong. Don't get cardiomyopathy just for fun. Um, But it was incredibly dangerous back then when there weren't as a... Don't tell me how to live my life, Janelle. (laughs) If you want to get recreational cardiomyopathy, like, you live your best life, Jessica. I just want to feel the rush (laughs) of... Not having enough blood circulating my body. That seems fun. Um, yeah. So, a- <laughs> uh, Amy was actually not supposed to be working at all in her condition. And she was hiding her medical issues from the hospital in order to keep her job and her health insurance benefits. Because this is America. And the cruel irony is that she was too sick to work. But without work, she has no health insurance. You know, the funny thing is, like, it literally, literally would have made sense for her to steal the medication that he's hoarding. Right. Also, like, oh no, <laughs> if only every other developed country in the world had developed a healthcare system in which, like, your health insurance is not directly tied to your employment. If only. Who knew? Oh, well. Oh, oh, what, a, what a novel yeah. concept. And she had consi- confided her struggles with Cullen, and he said that he was going to help her keep her, se- her condition a secret from their employer. In 2003, police approached Amy with their suspicions about Cullen and asked for her assistance. At that time, they were particularly interested in the death of Florian Gall, who was a patient who had been steadily improving before dying of an unexpected heart attack. The autopsy showed that Florian had died from a massive overdose of digoxin, a drug that he had never been prescribed. So, you know. Fishy. On the advice of her 11-year-old daughter, Lauren decided to cooperate with the police investigation. Why is the 11-year-old the voice of reason here? I don't know, but, like, multiple news articles, like, felt saw fit to, like, document that it was her mother, or it was her daughter who decided to make the decision, so. I would not volunteer that. So, Lauren reviewed Cullen's documentation, and she found that it was sloppy. 
She also found that he spent an unusual amount of time reviewing the files of other nurses' patients, which is not something that he would have had a legitimate reason to do. In the end, Lauren agreed to meet Cullen for dinner at a diner and that she would wear a wire during their conversation. Although he didn't outright confess to the murders, he did give enough information during that dinner for the police to arrest him. Lauren, for the record, does not believe Cullen's story that he was a mercy killer. She stated that he was a, quote, cold-blooded murderer. While in police custody following his arrest, Cullen would ultimately confess to his crimes, admitting that he had killed an estimated 40 patients over the course of his career. Uh, as part of his plea agreement, Cullen has promised to cooperate with the authorities in identifying all of his victims uh, in exchange for the state not seeking the death penalty for him. He has been officially convicted of 29 murders to date and is serving multiple life sentences in New Jersey State Prison. At present, he will not be eligible for parole until the year 2403. So I, I think we're safe. I don't know. It's coming up. <laughs> Mark your calendars. Dun, 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 dun. I don't suppose he still has a nursing license. Oh, no. No, I, well, I think I mean, they take that off you pretty quickly. I mean, it depends on how bad it gets. Like, are, are we going to have another nursing crisis in, like, 2040? <laughs> right in time? <laughs> we're kind of already there. We'll just... <laughs> We don't care how many people you've killed. <laughs> if, like, two more nurses resign in the entire city of Halifax, I am going to have to do, like, I'm going to have to learn how to do my own surgery on Skillshare. Like, we're there. We're, we're pretty much <laughs> there. I'm going to have to take a Coursera in order to, like, figure out how to take out my own gallstones. Like, this is not good. But yeah, so Cullen claimed that he killed all of his victims out of a sense of mercy. He said he killed them to end their suffering and to spare them the indignity of being a cold blue and enduring attempts to save their lives. He apparently really hated to see patients crash and thought that the process of bringing people back to life was quite traumatic and something he didn't want people to have to live through. Um, it is worth noting, of course, though, that Cullen killed several victims who had a good prognosis and were considered very likely to recover. And he was looking at their at their charts he would have known that right like he, you're scoping people out there's no way that you don't understand this cullen also claimed that his killings were done on impulse which yeah i could see that um, i mean i don't i don't doubt it yeah he said he often reached the snap decision to kill somebody after witnessing their suffering for several days on end he would just sort of reach his breaking point yeah but like you weren't even taking care of these people Right? And it's like, when I reach my breaking point, I eat a whole tube of cookie dough. <laughs> you know, we've, we've all been there. We've all been like there. This, this is me in crisis, is just eating a plastic clamshell of Costco danishes over the sink. Like, that is my rock bottom. It is not killing 29 people with digoxin. Sometimes when I get really stressed out at work, there's this really big closet with nothing in it that I just like to sit in in the dark. Still haven't killed that many people. Gotta, gotta admit. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's like, I return to the closet womb, but I do not kill. I, I, I tell my supervisor that too. We're moving buildings in a couple of weeks, and he talked them into into keeping us in the same building. And I'm like, oh good, I don't have to give up my lunchtime closet. And he's like, no, you don't have to give up your lunchtime closet. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you've been at this job for like a month and you've broken them. <laughs> 
You just took this man's soul and ground it <laughs> under your heel. Great workplace. Cullen also claims to have lived most of his life, quote, in a fog and claimed to have very little memory of most of his murders. So he's he's not even enjoying the process. On, he's just there. Get into the moment. Come on, right? To this day, he continues to work with law enforcement to identify his victims. Charles Cullen's story is really interesting because it perfectly highlights why it's so easy for angels of death to continue operating for years even when they're not particularly good at it and everybody suspects that they're just killing patients left and right. Because A, hospitals are very lawsuit-averse. If they knew it came to light that a member of staff was killing patients, they would be all sorts of liable for that, and that is typically not a risk that they're willing to take. Likewise, hospitals were often reluctant to give poor performance reviews to former staff. Admitting that a staff member had engaged in misconduct or performed poorly on the job while they were employed at a particular hospital could again open them up to a lawsuit. In the late 90s and early 2000s, in the states that Cullen worked in, medical facilities were only legally required to report especially egregious cases of suspicious death in the facility. So most deaths, they actually did not have any kind of burden to report. Even then, the chances of getting caught for non-reporting were quite low, and the penalties for non-reporting were quite minor, compared to the potential risks of being held liable for having a killer employee in your midst. So a lot of hospitals kind of did some napkin math and decided it was cheaper just to not report it, which is fun. Cullen actually did lead to some changes in state laws, so many states have now passed laws to encourage hospitals to give honest references of their past employees, and have widened the criteria for events that need to be reported, while also offering increased protections for hospitals that do report. So we're really working on on that piece right now, just how many people should die every year. We kind of need a number for that. But yeah, that is where we're going to leave off part one of our Angels of Death story. Um, I do have two more examples of Angels of Death who followed very different motive patterns, but you're going to have to tune in to next episode to hear those. And next episode, we'll talk about what are the red flags for um, detecting which of your colleagues may be an angel of death. So, you know, that appeals to a niche market, which is nurses who think one of their colleagues is systemically murdering old people. And in the episode after that, I'm going to talk about whales. Oh, good. Are they whales that get to live? (laughs) No. No, no, I did not think so. I've been doing this podcast a long time. Every animal I mention will be immediately and violently violated. Oh, good. Yes, I expected nothing less of this of this particular podcast. <laughs>